Hello everybody, I hope you are doing well. In this episode, I have a special guest. My guest is Aristotele Papanicolaou. He is a professor of theology at Fordham University. He holds the Archbishop Dimitrios Chair in Orthodox Theology and Culture and is the co-director of the Orthodox Christian Studies Center. Some of you may be thinking, Angelo, what are you doing bringing on a Orthodox theologian onto the Hearth of Hellenism podcast? Aren't you a polytheist? What's going on, you might be thinking. Well, yes, listener, that would be a good question if you have been following my, my work over the past several years and my interests in polytheism and Greek religion. But don't forget that Hearth of Hellenism is a place for Greek history, culture, religion, both ancient and modern, and everything in between. So yes, I do want to make space and carve out some time to include topics that pertain to the Orthodox religion, that is the predominant religion of Greek people today, the history of Orthodoxy, Christianity, and Eastern Roman empires. Those sorts of topics do interest me because it overlaps with Hellenism on many areas. So yes, there will be some discussion such as Orthodoxy. The conversation is also not purely religious. It really hinges on current affairs and politics and the overlap and intersectionality with religion. These are things that I'm interested in. I'm not just interested in ancient history. I am interested in politics and how religion, it interacts with politics. I'm very proud of this episode because for me, this episode is a good example of the uniqueness that I want my work to be. Um, The Hearth of Hellenism is something that is not just ancient. It's not just polytheism. I want to demonstrate what Hellenism is for me, and that is everything Greek. Before we jump into the episode, I do want to make a quick note and acknowledge that I think that my audio in this interview is not the best. I do have a really good microphone. It is a Blue Yeti microphone, and my audio does come out well when I'm doing the solo recording, such as these podcast introductions. However, for some reason, when I'm on Zoom doing the interviews, it's not recording that well. I don't know if it's because the microphone might not be close enough to me to capture my voice clearly. I'm going to be more mindful of this on future episodes, how close the microphone is. I think it's that. So I just want to make that known that I do know that my audio is a little bit eh in the in the interview at some points. Um, so if you have trouble understanding some of the stuff that I'm saying, I do apologize. Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> Enjoy. All right, Telly, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Awesome. So the reason uh, this interview uh, is happening is because of a tweet. So let's start with that tweet that from August. Um, there was a tweet concerning the Hungarians uh, celebrating the feast of St. Saint, Saint Stephen. And right. over the parliament, they had drones that made the sign of the cross over there. And the, and the poster was saying, like, you know, giving, you know, um, accolades to this and saying you would never see this in, in the United States on July 4th. Right. So, and, um, 
and you are you retweeted that this is how I ca it caught my attention and you and you wrote translation we really need more dictators who kill journalists oppress the uh, opposition rig the courts outlaw homosexuality etc all in the name of a quote Christian culture that's right. really um, that's really living not by lies. So right. that that caught my attention because this is something we have in common where we uh, don't want to live in a uh, uh, Christo-fascist theocratic state. Right. right. And um, this is how I also found your work, uh, your book, Mystical is the Political, right. uh, Non-Radical Orthodoxy and Democracy. Right. So um, a couple of things there. Um, it's important to realize who... Uh, wrote that sort of uh, tweet that praised the cross, uh, you know, being being um, portrayed via the drones and all that. A guy named Rod Dreher, and he was trying to, you know, praise how it is that uh, Hungary, as a state, as a as a government, as a state, can so visibly uh, symbolize uh, itself as a Christian nation. And while the U.S. used to do that, it has somehow uh, lost that uh, particular kind of character or form. And he wrote this book, Live Not By Lies, where he basically um, thinks that we are on the verge of a kind of liberal totalitarianism. Um, so, uh, look, I mean, <clears throat> it's not the it's, let me Let me just be clear. It is not the case that to have a thriving liberal democracy that you need to exclude religious symbols. I don't think that that is the case. So I want to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. And you have thriving liberal democracies where religious symbols are portrayed. Um, and even you have thriving liberal democracies, I think, where um, even certain religions are given a certain kind of priority or even a certain established status within the within the constitution like so example, yeah i would say greece greece i mean the orthodox church is the established religion the orthodox church is a very powerful institution 90 percent of the greeks still identify as orthodox even if they don't go to church or it doesn't really mean much to them they still identify those are all complicated issues but i do think I think I think Greece has its problems with minorities, but I don't think um, it's on the verge of a kind of authoritarianism that we see in Hungary. I mean, mm -hmm. I think in Hungary we yeah. see uh, an authoritarianism, and so the thing that I wanted to communicate was that not that we can't have religious symbols, and I think in a like even in the United States, if we have a pluralistic democracy. It's not that we can't show like the the Christmas scene outside the you know outside the local city hall. It's just that you need to also show other religious scenes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, you need you can't just show the 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 one religious scene because that's the problem. You don't you want you don't want the state here in the United States anyway because we're so pluralistic. Yeah, to give that kind of priority. So it's not that's not the problem per se. The issue is that this guy. Dreyer is contrasting Hungary with the United States. And it's there's an irony because he's basically trying to counter totalitarianism, or supposedly he's against totalitarianism, and he's praising a totalitarian state. Yeah. And he's praising a totalitarian totalitarian ruler. And he knows as much as well because it, 
it's yeah, sure he was voted in by a democracy, but it's also very clear that he has squashed the opposition. He's taken over all the state media. He's controlled the legislature, the courts, all kinds of things that obviously authoritarians do on their way toward becoming authoritarians, right? So let's be clear. Again, just to kind of conclude this part, uh, religious symbols are okay in a thriving democracy as long as it's pluralistic and it's equal. Um, and many political philosophers actually have that view. I think the French situation is not, not good. Right now they're trying to ban um, Muslim, not, not simply the headdress, but uh, something called the abaya, the actual long robe that women wear uh, outside. And that's that to me doesn't make any sense. Um, but, you know, you can't, you just can't sit there and praise Hungary for putting up the cross and saying it's a Christian nation when, in fact, we know that the guy's acting like, like a ruthless dictator. So I just don't think that that makes any sense. Yes, agreed. Now, with your work now, so this is the interesting thing. So uh, I found your, your book interesting because it it tries to address the issue of orthodoxy and these political issues. Um, and yeah. so we, we should uh, explain to the audience some of the current political issues going on within orthodoxy in terms of um, either like right-wing authoritarianism, um, support for liberal democracies, the different branches of orthodoxy, uh, where these things uh, fall, and uh, what is the current discourse or what are the pr uh, prominent narratives that are being uh, circulated currently? Um, in the U.S.? Uh, uh, we could, we could or, do the U.S. or uh, wherever you, you think it's appropriate. Like in my, in my case, I've had experiences with uh, an American convert to Russian orthodoxy. I, Okay. you know, us battling it out. And, you know, I saw a little bit of it myself, right. Right. you know, so maybe that's a good starting point. Well, I mean, I think in the Orthodox world in particular, so it it's very important for your listeners to realize that in the Orthodox world, um, only since the 1990s have we been in a space where all the Orthodox churches have to negotiate uh, what it means to live in a liberal democracy. Um, prior to that, and we're only talking like 30 years ago, prior to that, um, the, the Orthodox, most of the Orthodox world had to really negotiate or contend with either friendly or hostile empires. Mm -hmm. If we think of the Soviet Union as a kind of empire, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or communist regimes, right? Yeah. Um, so, we'll say empires and or regimes. Um, so it's significant that, you know, we're 30 years into it and we're still, which isn't a long time, and we're still trying to make sense of it. I will say in the Orthodox world, broadly, it's complicated in the sense that you don't really have, I think, a, a, lar a, a very broad sentiment against democracy but what you see is a kind of picking and choosing of what they want to keep and what 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 they think is somehow what they what they want this kind of east-west tension in other words the yes. kind of democratic principles that they want to keep but then the kind of things that they want to basically distance themselves from europe and so part of that has to do with for the most part these uh things that are being called now traditional values and um so there's a sense in which, you know, people want to keep the voting and the right to vote and 
different parties and different things like that. But in the end, um, they don't want to become like Europe in the sense of what they think is a purely secularized country or nation that allows various kinds of social um, norms uh, to flourish, um, such as abortion or gay marriage or things like that. And that's the, that's where they're, I think that's where, that that's kind of the common bond, I think, with Orthodox all over the world, even the United States, right? Because those in the United States, it's very interesting, the rhetoric they use. And of course, you should have Sarah Ricardi Schwartz on your show because she has this book between uh, Heaven and Russia, where she talks about converts to Orthodoxy who um, basically love Russia, they love Putin, they think Putin's the savior and so on and so forth. So I, I think there's, but even amongst that crowd, it's not that they're trying to, um, they're, not, they're not trying to reject America. They think America needs saving. Mm-hmm. And they need, it needs saving in the sense that it should be a democratic country, sure, but one with very thick sense of moral norms to it. Yeah, um, not Christian it, values Im- imposed. Right, of certain kinds, not all of them, certain yeah. kinds. Uh, not, not helping the poor, but, you know, uh, taking right. rights away. <laughs> certain kinds of certain ones, right. And in Greece is very interesting, too, because Greece is Greece has moved in the direction of adopting uh, um, almost certain abortion is legal in Greece, right? Yeah. And uh, obviously they have civil unions, which is like Germany. They're, they're Germany, like... Germany technically does not have gay marriage per oh, se, okay. civil unions. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, there's like a map of which ones, uh, of which European states have actually marriage and others that have civil unions. I think G- Germany is still calling it civil unions. Mm-hmm. Um, so Greece is not necessarily out of the norm in doing yeah. that. And, and we so, might have our first gay, uh, prime minister in Greece. <laughs> I, I, I saw that, I saw that. And, uh, but not only that, but there are shows in Greece. I mean, uh, you know, this really popular show, my show, Maestro in Blue, uh, it's really it's really quite remarkable uh, the way they're depicting two young boys uh, in a way that I don't even think you see that on American television, quite honestly. Um, mm-hmm. That level of intimacy, that level of depth, you know, you might see it in American movies, but I'm not really sure you see it in American television all that much. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think move, Greece is a complicated place, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, the church has lost the cultural wars there. Let's put it that way. Um, even though they still, what's fascinating is they still remain a very powerful force. So in Greece, I I think in in the Orthodox world in general, I would say democracy, there is lip service to democracy. It depends on which part. Yeah. Democratic institutions and structures are stronger or weaker, depending on which part of the Orthodox world you're in. But in general, there's a general vibe um, of like, you know, we need to... um, I don't know, re-Christianize or have this kind of, uh, have these traditional values come into place. Um, but that's not, not all Orthodox Christians think that way. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of them and uh, I'm trying to, me and many others of us who are trying to articulate a different, like Pandelika Lazidis in Greece, we're trying to articulate, I think, a different kind of vision. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I'm, and it's funny where it's interesting we're having a conversation because I'm on, I'm sort of on the same page, you know, with you, but from a different religious uh, philosophical background of a polytheist so this is it, i really want to have this conversation because there is common ground here because i i feel like in my experiences with the the greek polytheists in greece the there's a lot of tension and conflict 
with with the Greek society at large, and I would like to try and you know forge um, connections with commonalities and where we have overlaps of common goals. So this is a common goal, I think. Yeah, and that's that's the way a thriving that and and that's the way really a thriving uh, democracy should function in the sense that there's a very famous Harvard political philosopher he's since passed away named John Rawls, and he sort of calls it the overlapping consensus. So rather than having sort of the religion define what everybody should agree on, you you need some kind of a consensus for a functioning society. Yeah. And I think like people can agree on freedom and equality as a kind of minimal standard, but they can agree with it. They can agree uh, on it for different reasons, right? So you as a polytheist, me as an Orthodox Christian, a Muslim, Right. We could kind of come together and say, you know, right. Freedom and equality. That works. You know, I don't just I don't necessarily agree with you on everything, but I can agree with you on this much. Uh, but we would do it from some different metaphysical places. Yes. And and that's OK. I mean, I mean, that's OK. That's what makes things that, that's what makes things work. So, yes. So now with that being said, I feel that some people uh, who are listening to this who are either um, probably ex-Christians, people who left the church, whatever denomination they were, they've yeah. left because they didn't like certain qualities of Christianity. They didn't like the history of Christianity. This right. is, and I'm always very interested in the early, um, you know, late antiquity, uh, Byzantine history, and right. how the religion and the empire came together. And it seems that, you know, one could make the argument, and I think many do make that argument on on uh, like the right side, the side that's against the West, is right. that orthodoxy, you know, Christianity is inherently, you know, um, on the side of monarchy, of right. empire, of authoritarianism, all those sorts of things. So um, what would you say to that? How do we approach that? I don't, I, don't, I mean, I, I personally don't think, um, I don't think there's any religious tradition that's inherently um, this or that. Uh, I think that they have long histories of uh, certain kinds of affiliations with political regimes. And it happens to be the case that, you know, the Orthodox world, for the most part, since the 1990s, has had um, has had a certain kind of relationship with, with monarchical or uh, authoritarian kinds of regimes. And only since the 1990s, as I have said, have they been trying to negotiate democratic norms and what that really, really entails for them in terms of being committed to it. I would say that, um, you know, the Catholic world, you know, it was only, it was only to the 19, it was only up to the 1950s and 1960s. It was, it was from the 1950s and 60s that they actually started to embrace fully uh, modern democracy. Um, and now that's become sort of the official norm for the, for the Catholic church. Um, so, Look, theologically, theoretically, within the tradition itself, there are, I think there are deep theological resources for making the claim that Orthodox should fully embrace a democratic pluralism. I think that's what I'm trying to do. But also there are people in Islam trying to do that. I think there, you know, there are people in, in Buddhist and Hindu traditions and Jewish traditions also who kind of want to you know, you basically think theologically, like, you know, if this is really the core of my tradition, like, where where does it lead, right? So, I mean, a thousand years ago, it would have been 
kind of unthinkable uh, for someone to think about it in terms of in terms of, to think of their tradition in terms of democratic norms because it's just that wasn't really the norm back then. There really wasn't uh, uh, sort of thinking in terms of democratic pluralism really wasn't the thing that gained steam, and you know neither were the conditions ripe for it. You have orthodox like John Chrysostom who rail against democracy, but he's not really railing against liberal democratic structures like executive power, legislative power, things like that. He's just he's he's railing against sort of the irrationality of the masses when they decide to vote um, for something that doesn't seem to make any sense. And I and I also think he's right about that. In other words, I don't the kind of democracy that we support is not necessarily a majoritarian democracy or uh, the kind of democracy that talks about voting, it's really the a democracy committed to freedom and equality for all people. And we're still kind of hashing that out, what that means, and still debating it because some people think it means economic equality and other people don't. We're still making sense of it. Some people thought at one time that it didn't have to mean that women voted, but now uh, it would be hard to imagine a democratic uh, structure society where women didn't vote, right? Yeah. So. So I, I, um, I, I think, again, in the 1990s, the Orthodox world had a negotiated for the first time. And I think since the 1990s, we're still in that debate. And there are some of us trying to convince others that this is not in contradiction to our tradition. In fact, it's what our tradition really demands theologically if these are the core elements of our tradition. Mm-hmm. And just because it wasn't this way in history isn't a good argument. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, what we're all trying to claim, that history should not necessarily determine how we think about the present and the future. Yeah. Uh, our, theology, our theology should. And I, I think most people would be on board, except now to be a democratic pluralistic state means to accept certain kinds of freedoms. Mm-hmm. Some people think uh, are antithetical to to being orthodox yes yeah, so the the, the um, fight for human rights you know equality these are certain things that then people will say well this goes against the religion again like oh well, i'm gay i would like you know i'm happy that i live in a country that provides me the opportunity and the right to get married and but you know some people i guess would take religion and say well no you shouldn't have that right because they you know and they'll use the religion to you know give their justification how um, how would how would we harmonize that nowadays? What would you? Uh, I mean, that's that's I mean, that's exactly where that's 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 where the religion has the hard part. It really does. I mean, that's where in the United States, and it's different for every country. In the United States, that's where the Orthodox Church as an institution uh, has a hard time, and not just the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church as well, has a hard time saying, "Okay, within our particular religious space, this is how we think about things." But when I when I react to the political space, uh, how is it as what is it as an institution that I should promote? And it feels like a contradiction, like, you know, well, within my religious space, it seems that this doesn't you know, we don't allow this. So how can I allow it over there? Right. And but that's see, that's the trick. The trick is to understand that in order to support a flourishing democratic pluralism, they're going to have to accept certain things to be allowed in a political space that they don't allow uh, within their own religious space. I mean, let's move beyond even the sexuality issue. I mean, technically within the religious space, they don't allow 
uh, let's say, premarital sex, right? Do they really want to outlaw in the political space premarital sex? I mean, does that make any sense at all? I don't, I don't, I mean, at one time it was outlawed, but I don't mm -hmm. know if we want to go back to that kind of, that, that kind of example. And, um, and, you know, so that's, that's the hard part. And then let's say in places like Greece and Serbia and other places like that, then the, uh, there's an added element to it, right? There's sort of the religious and ethnic identity thing. Yeah. So the churches, and I think this is a bad move on their part. The churches start to play up kind of how to be Greek or Serbian means to be Orthodox. And if we accept these rules and norms, we're moving away from our true identity and all this other kind of rhetoric, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so then it gets really complicated there in terms of how the church reacts. It almost feels like a defensive reaction. It feels like, you know, they don't really have any good arguments for why this shouldn't be allowed in a democratic yeah. pluralism, except for this uh, religious and ethnic identity thing. And then in Russia, what you have emerging there is uh, a complete religious nationalism where Putin is completely co-opting the church for geopolitical purposes. I mean, he's yeah. really carving out a Russia that is geopolitically different than Europe, especially when it comes to traditional values, right? So, so for him, it's totally just as a tool to, uh, and then some of the other, other countries are like, they're like, they're, they're like schizophrenic because they're like, no, we need Europe for economic, and they, 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 and they do. We want Europe for, because we know that economically we're going to be better off with Europe, but we like what Russia is doing on this whole traditional values thing. So they're like, they don't know which way to support and, uh, or they're trying to support both at the same time, which is now the Ukraine war has made much more difficult. So, but that's, you've pointed, I think, I, I think you've pointed out the heart of the problem is how it is that this institution can feel that it's being consistent with itself when within its own religious space it maintains a certain tradition but then to support democratic pluralism it's going to need to accept that things can happen in this democratic pluralist space that that can happen in in their own religious space and, and even if we go something like gay marriage or civil unions to me it doesn't make any sense for the church to be against this in, pub in public space because ultimately what they're against is what the state considers simply a contract, yeah. right? a contractual relationship. And why should the church in, in the end be against something which is to some extent within the state parameters, a, a, just a contractual relationships, yeah. a contractual relationship. And, you know, the church is... Um, it's it's in contradiction because you know for let's say hetero um, political marriages right uh, or political civil unions sure the church doesn't accept them but they're not on the streets fighting against it yeah so it doesn't, it doesn't really make any, yeah it doesn't really make any sense that that in terms yeah. of other kinds of contractual arrangements that yeah. it would you know do you think they it's more of a well they fear that that is bringing up sin into society so now it's in and they're gonna you know god's gonna punish the the, the nation you, you know we we had that over here too with like pat uh robinson every time there was a, a yeah. disaster it's like oh it's because of the gays you know or something like that like that's why the the, the hurricane came or something right right yeah i think uh no i well they see that's the thing because they yeah the, None of, I think there's not, I don't think there's an, a single Orthodox church in the world that 
says that they're against democracy. I mean, Russia's on the verge of that, I think, but they still haven't quite said that they're against democracy. Mm -hmm. um, now, Russia doesn't look very de democratic, and now they're just hungry. Um, but no, I think that their their claim is that when it comes to kind of the moral texture of a society, that it's not in contradiction to both support democracy and at the same time uh, restrict certain kinds of uh, practices or relationships. Or mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, you know, and, and in the broad pol political philosophy debate, there is there's there is um there is there's there's a book by Cecile Laborde who is um called the liberal liberalism's religion and she does make the claim that look liberal democracy can look different in different places and as an example she says it's not necessarily against liberal democratic norms to restrict abortion she'll say it's not necessarily against it um so there, you know, liberal democracy can look different. Can look different. I guess I just want to would make the argument that um, the church doesn't really have a good argument about why it should be rejecting certain kinds of things, like certain kinds of contractual relationships. Because the argument they do use is that it's not good for society. Um, but that that there's no empirical evidence for that at all. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, in the Greek space, it's a little different. I think that they they use the argument that it's against our longstanding tradition of what it means to be Greek Orthodox. In other words, to be both Greek and Orthodox at the same time. So they're 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 playing more the religious ethnicity card. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that tension. There is that tension of like, no, we support democracy, but you know, uh, but it, yeah, well, that's exactly it. But we support democracy. But yeah, but. <laughs> trying to preserve some sort that, of but, that, that but gets them into all kinds of contradictions yeah. yeah now so in the book though you have uh your main thesis is about theosis yeah and how this plays into why you know um orthodoxy should uh, should or is in, is compatible with democracy and this is an this is a path towards a non-radical form of orthodoxy can you explain theosis and yeah what you how you yeah. think so, the conversation yeah i mean so again i mean my position is that if we look at if we don't look at history but look at our core theological beliefs the things that really if we were to take out of the equation would you know would make us stop being orthodox to some extent right and one of the things that is very key to the orthodox world and to other christian worlds too is this idea of deification, which is very, to some extent, uh, that it, it's it's one of those uh, common ground things that we might have with paganism, even though we might think of it differently. Yeah, genesis. Um, right. So the the so deification is this idea that um, Athanasius put it best when he says God became human so that humans can become God. So what does becoming God mean? Um, well, in the Christian tradition, if, if God is love, and that is the primary name that Christians give to God, then becoming God um, is 
to love, to love the world, to love people as God loves the world. And, you know, God's love is unconditional no matter what we do. I mean, it doesn't mean we're off the hook for things that we do uh, to other people and things like that. There is justice, but there is also the, the goal really is in some sense uh, to mold ourselves into, to, uh, to mold ourselves into becoming um, the kinds of human beings that are able to increase their capacity for love. Yeah. And this is, this would be an area I think of common ground between the, the Orthodox and the, the polytheistic uh, camp of things because you know we do have you know the idea of you know trying to become like god and so in, in as much as our power as possible this goes back to plato the practicing mm -hmm. of virtues to try to right. cultivate the soul to you know right. elevate ourselves so there is there is commonality here you know there, yeah. there are differences obviously but i think you know the focus should be on the commonalities right now because i think what you have to say could you know is is reason for me to reflect and pause to see how this could be you know it does it translate into my world you know is it a one-for-one -one comparison is it you know is does it be tweaked a little bit does it make sense with uh henosis and with theosis you know these are things that i'm thinking about yeah, because I think what, well, in the Orthodox world, though, what you have is this interesting thing where when you think about theosis, you think about it only in the monasteries. Mm -hmm. And often the monasteries are seen as these places away from the political world. Mm -hmm. And so the monasteries are the place of theosis and the political world is kind of like this, you know, messed up place that we don't really, you know, that's not... Yeah, they go to the monastery to get away from all that. Yeah, that's not the sphere of theosis. And I think the thing yeah. that I'm trying to do is say that, no... Like, you know, that would mean that if you're just a normal Orthodox Christian, you you couldn't become deified, and and I don't I don't think that's true. I mean, I think uh, the whole world is, you know, in in my book, as you know, I say it like politics is the desert where we encounter the you know the, the encounter the you know where we encounter the the temptation to demonize the stranger, and um, and it's really true in many ways in the political field. There's you know, look, monasteries aren't perfect, but at least everybody shares the same, you know, belief system, rule of, you know, rule of practice and everything. Yeah, everyone's on the same page. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, they they may not get along with each other. I mean, that's the struggle. But here, we're actually facing people that don't believe in it, the same thing we do, that that we really have to face, you know, the stranger. Um, and And Jesus says to love, you know, enemy and stranger. So to 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 love God to 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 love as God loves in the world is to is to love enemy and stranger, which is very very difficult. I'm not trying to minimize how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, then this whole world that we live in is a space in, in which we work we work that theosis thing out, right? We we it becomes an opportunity uh, for us to engage in the kinds of practices that we can improve our relationships with God and with others. And I think politics, quite, quite honestly, I think politics is, and I don't think anybody in the Orthodox tradition has ever said this before, I think politics is an ascetical practice to engage in your community, to argue with people, to, you know, uh, volunteer, to respect other people's opinions, to respect pluralism. That's all ascetical uh, in my mind. And it's an ascetical can you explain? Well, yeah, I mean, asceticism is 
it's not simply a self-denial in the sense like, oh, I can't have lamb or things like that. Although that's, you know, kind of part of it. I mean, everything is ascetical, right? I mean, the going, going to the gym is ascetical, right? You sort of deny yourself, you're, you're aware. Asceticism to me is a kind of an awareness of the kinds of things that you're practicing and doing so as to form yourself in a particular kind of way and form your relationships in a particular kind of way. And, you know, I think going to the gym is a form of asceticism um, where we think about, you know, the kinds of relational impacts that um, the kinds of actions we do in going to the gym, which may entail also denying ourselves like certain kinds of foods or whatever is, is or drinking certain kinds of smoothies or whatever is, is a kind of an ascetical practice because we're kind of forming ourselves in ways for a certain kind of relational impact. And I think politics is that. I mean, I, I think uh, asceticism isn't just about prayer and fasting and all that, it, although it obviously doesn't tell those things in the Orthodox Church, but it's also like really, really thinking about the ways in which I'm going to you know, work on myself and, and relate to others uh, in such a way that, you know, I, I, I just can't have everything I want, right? And I'm not going to murder someone so that somehow this particular political thing can um, get passed uh, although some people do things like that but yeah. it's it's more about how I'm engaging with difference um, in the political sphere that is yeah it's how I'm engaging in difference and how my engaging with difference is an opportunity to work on myself and my relationship with God. So asceticism in the Christian sense has something to do with working on our relationship with God. And I don't think there's a sphere anywhere uh, that uh, is, is sort of um, where, and I don't think there's a sphere anywhere in which, you know, uh, that ascetical practice can't be practiced. Mm -hmm. It's all that, about that, that Yeah. That asceticism can't be practiced, right? Yeah. Like I'm going to my work or, you know, whether I'm at the gym or whether I'm at church or whether I'm in my family or walking. Yeah, my so it's dog. pervasive throughout, you know, all of human experience. It has to be because it has to do with our relationship with God and our relationship with God is pervasive in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the uh, the opposition to this point of view of theosis? Because now we, it's a theological concept and everyone has their own views on theology. This is your understanding and presentation of theosis. Now, what what is the historical or the counter um, narrative concerning theosis that supports the other side? What are, what's the opposition saying? No, no one's no one's no one's opposed to theosis. I think people are uh, how they apply it. How are they applying? I think they're it? They're, 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 they're they're opposed to the way in which I'm using it to support liberal democratic norms because um, they you know one guy accused me of. Um, making theoses worldly or something like that and um well i mean I, I you know he criticized me for that but i don't i don't i don't think that that's necessarily wrong because i think i'm i am trying to mundanize theos yeah well we live in the mundane well i'm trying to see that theos is in the mundane uh yeah and you know to me you know, you don't have to be like a theologian or a monk to see virtuous living or even holy living and there's plenty of examples of uh, Christians, uh, you know, throughout the centuries who don't get recognized as saints, but ultimately applied that way of living in their life in the village or whatever they, whatever they did, you know, I could think of my grandmother and so many other people. And so it, it's clear that even in mundane living that 
one can spot that I would call mm -hmm. a theotic way of being in the world uh, because sure their mundane living may have to be with just cooking and cleaning or you know doing kind of you know mundane jobs around the house or whatever but they do them in a kind of way where they're relating both to the world to themselves to others and to god and, and uh, again in a way that i would call theotic and so mm -hmm. it's we just we have to stop thinking about the, the theosis as this domain of the monks or of the monastic. yeah or something you do on sunday right sphere of the of the sacred it's the, also the sphere of the of the mundane that's exactly right and if it's the world of mundane then we have to think about then we, how do you apply we, it what we really have to think about is how it what implications it has for our engagement in politics mm -hmm. uh and some people you know are like well you know, I, what do I get? I get things like, oh, well, Chrysostom or St. John of Kronstadt hated democracy. So that's basically an argument that says these saints, these saints say it's bad, so we can't do it. And, you know, it, that's kind of a, you know, I get the logic of it, but nobody in the history of Orthodox Christianity ever argued that way, right? Athanasius, Basil, all those great figures never argued that way. They never said, you know, Paul didn't say this. I mean, I mean, they 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 drew on the scriptures and everything, but they never argued in that particular kind of way and um so that doesn't that doesn't really make any sense to me. did any of them uh challenge the empire and the and the emperor they well they i don't see i don't think it was within their frame of reference to challenge the structure of the empire because one of the things they were for was for order and i think that they saw government giving order at the time but i they did challenge the um they did challenge the the um we call it wealth gap, I guess, at the time. They did they definitely did challenge the way in which the poor were being um um treated in the empire. Yeah. Poor and the marginalized. There's there's up there's all kinds of evidence for that. Uh, kind of like today. Yeah. Yeah, there's all <laughs> kinds of there's all kinds of textual evidence for that. So they did challenge and they did stand up to emperors. Some of them did stand up to emperors. Chrysostom did and Maximus the Confessor did, and um, so many other Basil did, and so many other ones did too. So they did stand up to emperors. They did, mm -hmm. and they got you know they they suffered for it. some. Many of them suffered for it too. So now within the within the diaspora, I want let's let's try to bring this conversation, I guess, to the diaspora and maybe the the Greek American communities in, in the United States. What could be something they need to know or be aware of? How can we educate them on these issues? Because I I've seen in my experience the like the Greek communities are going right wing and certain things, and the you know they they like the idea of Christianity having some sort of privilege in society. I, I I've kind of seen that to a certain extent. I don't know if that's something you've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's well. I think that's the issue with the church. I mean, the church. One of the things the church is afraid of is that if they press democratic pluralism too much, is that they're going to lose their own privileges within the society. And I, I don't think they're necessarily wrong with that, honestly. I mean, I, but that's the risk you have to take. I mean, if you're going to be true to your principles, that's the risk you have to take. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of a broader um, educational kind of... I don't know. It's really difficult because right now, I mean, you have the idea that in order to be Christian, you you there's a certain caricature. You know, you you must have to 
you must be against this or that, or, and if it's even extending to vaccines in America and in, even in Greece, I mean, to be, you know, there's this phrase to be disecclesias, to be of the church, right? Is it, There's a certain type, a caricature of that, right? You can't, yeah. you can't be of the church and like, I don't know, go to a bar. I mean, it seems weird. Um, and that's, so I, I just think that that, it's it's difficult to cut through these caricatures, right? To cut through these caricatures yeah. and to get people to realize that there's a lot of different ways that people can be orthodox, right? There's a lot of different ways that um, you. I just think you can be a, a faithful orthodox Christian and you know have questions about the church's position, let's say on you know homoerotic. Um, uh, relations and um, especially those that are uh, virtuous and monogamous and you know so I think that um, I, I think you can be a good Orthodox Christian and see the wisdom of having ordained women uh, mm -hmm. and as priests um, now, author authoritarianism, like, how do we sh show people the signs of what they should be worried about? Like, I, I like sharing this story, particularly with my with my uncle. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember because this is something I think that the Orthodox don't understand is that the things they see around them in the society might look like it's for you, but it's not for you. You're not the audience. Right. And this goes for a lot of things that might be Greek, you know. Uh, um, Hellenism, you know, gets appropriated. For example, things are are used like look like Disney's Hercules or whatever. Like that has been appropriated. They turn into something else, and it's like the Greeks will look at that. It's like, well, it doesn't really relate to the real myth. It doesn't, you know, they, they they things get shaped, and you know, you know what I mean. Like they they transform for the audience now. Bring it to the politics and religion. I remember this was during the Trump years, and my uncle was watching TV, and Melania was giving. Uh, she was saying the Lord's Prayer at a, at a um a rally. I don't know if you ever saw saw it, but he's sitting there and going, "Oh, I like to see my religion represented here." Right, right. And I I said to him, "This isn't your religion being represented to you because the audience there is likely all like you know evangelicals or whatnot." And, you know, they're what they signal to each other, what they are trying to tell them or promote is very different than what you might want to promote and what you might see as acceptable. And, you know, you might fall into the trap of supporting a, 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 a you might support policies and individuals because you see them as Christian as one of you. But in the end, they're going to persecute you, persecute you in the end because they see you as a heretic that, you know, you're an Orthodox, you're, you know, you're Catholic, you guys are actually, you know, um, following false religion, you know, and all that sort of thing. And he didn't quite get it until he saw the during the election, there were people uh, outside of Arizona, some um, uh, facility where the votes were counting and they were um, on the floor praying for, you know, um, uh, Trump to win and going going crazy at the doors. And he's like, what is that? I go, that's the Christianity of this country. He goes, those aren't Christians. Right, right. I'm like, no, those are Christians. And those were the people that they were talking to at the rally when they were saying the prayer. I go, you're not the audience. Yeah. So it's these sorts of things that, um, like, how do we really... Um, uh, teach people or educate people on these nuances i don't know because the the world is so polarized that um i mean i think at our center the orthodox christian studies center public orthodoxy we try to offer a different kind of voice and we try to offer it we're not 
under any illusion that we're going to convince people sort of uh, that are um, have a little bit more of a fundamentalist take on orthodoxy, let's call it. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, so, but you know, it, it's become so polarized that you know, people are just kind of reading things that they want to read, and I and and they're not really reading, you know, counter counter views or counterpoints carefully. Um, I think the only way to do it is to have those kind of one to one conversations. But you know, I don't know how you scale up those one to one conversations, quite obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, I really don't know how do you do that. I mean, but having those one-to-one -one conversations with people to just get them to see certain kinds of things, because, you know, you are exactly right. So Orthodox Christians may think now that they have common cause with other Christians, but let's say that Christianity becomes the norm again in the United States and the culturally, um, uh, sort of the culturally dominant norm uh, in the United States, then going to be certain kinds of christians who are then going to say well it has to be this kind of christianity exactly and so it, it's everybody talks about slippery slopes in all kinds of different ways right if we this you know like i remember on the gay marriage debate well if you allow gay marriage we're going to have polygamy and this and that and whatever and uh, you know and all these slippery slope kind of arguments right well you know it can go the other way too in the sense that what people don't realize is that you know if you know, if, if you, uh, you might, you know, you might, you might see common cause and, and have allies in this particular what kind of way, but history is also showing us that your one-time ally could then turn on you, like, yeah, especially very, very quickly. Yeah. And the demographics, there's not a lot of Orthodox in the United States. There's the Orthodox, they um, rank, I forgot the ranking for them in the United States, but it's low. It's like, oh, we're like, you know, point, we're like 0.5%. Yeah. So it's a very small uh, minority in this country. And, you know, supporting um, the, for example, like I see within Catholicism, they're supporting, there's an alignment with Catholicism, with evangelicalism. Right, right. Just on many things. So it's like, well, is the, what is the, the Orthodox Church going to do about that? I, I feel, I, it seems from what I see from what the church, the Greek Orthodox Church in the United States is more left-leaning I would say moderate to left uh, than the other Orthodox churches for sure. Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily in the parishes because I think it depends on what parish you go to, but yeah, I mean, uh, but I, I think our churches have more of a mix. They really do. And in some sense that should be seen as a, in some sense that should be seen as a, um, as a, as not a victory. That's not really not the word, an accomplishment. Um, there is, mm -hmm. um, there is a sense in which most of our parishes have Democrats and Republicans in there in uh, mm -hmm. within the parishes. And they sort of, uh, you know, they, they sort of um, put aside, you know, as they say, we say in our own liturgy that, you know, at the true Bikim, let us put aside all the cares of this life. To some extent, they're, they're kind of able to do that in the liturgy, although I don't think there's complete success because I do think some people strongly advocate for one political position or another but but there are I, I do think uh within our parishes we haven't quite gone hard right and i i think that there are other jurisdictions where you see that kind of move happening uh and mm -hmm. that it's very difficult to again it's it's there's a vibe in which those parishes are identified much more with hard right 
politics. Um, but you know, even there, there are even there there are exceptions. I mean, even even within those other communities, there are within those other jurisdictions, there are exceptions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is there anything that you want to cover that you think might be important? No, I'm except that. Um, just a good, I mean, uh, assuming that many of your listeners are, are Greek listeners that aren't Orthodox, uh, but I'm sure you have Greek listeners who are Orthodox, but assume that yeah. it's just that, you know, try to not caricature Orthodoxy as this sort of um, monolithic, backward um, religion that somehow is against democratic norms and against women, against, uh, that is homo that is inherently homophobic or sexist or patriarchal things. I just don't, there are many of us in that world that are trying to show that it could be otherwise. Now, whether we- How does it actually happen now? Yeah, like, how does it actually yeah whether we gain steam or not in order to change the institutional structures, I don't know. But I do know that, I know that, I do know there are people who have reached out to me and say, look, you know, I am in my parish and, you know, there is this small clique that is giving me this vibe. It's not everybody, but there's a small clique and it's really upsetting. And, you know, I have certain views and, but I love my church, right? And I don't want to leave it. Um, and I just tell them like, look, I mean, there are other people who think like you and you do, there is a community of people out there for you. And um, one of the hard parts is to find a community that you can feel is not going to be so judgy um and there are they exist out there as we kind of talked about especially yep. in the greek orthodox world um but but online it's one of the advantages of online is that you can find much more easily now orthodox christians who you know feel that they try to be faithful orthodox christians but yet uh, also feel based on the theology and even the history that uh, you know things you know, we can think about things differently. And um, so I, I would just say, you know, just try not to, try not to, to fall trap to caricatures about orthodoxy, but quite honestly, just caricatures in general, because I think caricatures mm -hmm. keep us from the, finding the kind of common ground that, you know, I think that your, your program and what, you know, what you personally are trying to yep. forge. Yes. Uh, as a theologian outside the church, now how does this, how does, what uh, challenges does that pose to you? How do you get your ideas really kind of yeah. implemented or uh, thought about? Like, who's the audience? Because if this, if like what you're saying is not being taught in seminary, no. you know, let's say at, at Holy Cross in Massachusetts, for example, if it's not being taught to the, to the coming priests into the church, if it's not in the, the discourse in the church, yeah. you know, and it's, here in the domain of you know the school and the the university how do we how does that bridge get gapped well first of all i know i i know people at holy cross and i can tell you that my ideas are being exposed to the students um mm -hmm. now whether the students agree or not is not the story yeah. Um, I, I tried looking up the curriculum over there and I, I really couldn't find any syllabus. Yeah, no, they, there are courses in ethics and dogmatics okay. and other things. So my idea. Yeah, I couldn't get the details. So I really. I, yeah, they're being, I, they're I being exposed. So, but no, you're right, though. It could be the case that they wouldn't be. It could it might be the case that they wouldn't be, but they are being exposed to my ideas. OK. Um, now, it's it's up to them to decide whether they agree or not. Uh, I know that 
you know, like we have this, we have this center of Fordham, which is the, the way in which we're trying to disseminate that kind of knowledge. And I think we have various kinds of audiences. We have an, we have a Christian theological one where I think we're fairly well known. We have an academic one, which after, especially after the Ukraine, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've become much, much more well known. Um, I was on the Brian Lehrer show, for example, and you know George, my colleague, was on BBC. I mean, things like that are have been happening with us. And then we have the church audience, which I think we're we're. I don't know if we're still a common household name. Let's put it that way, <laughs> but we're we're slowly sort of seeping into the into the church world. Um, I do think a lot of priests love us and support us, and they, they're happy. Uh, I know there's a lot of bishops who have told us privately that we're they're very happy that we're raising these issues because it's difficult for them to raise them in their parishes and their, their dioceses or their metropolises. Yeah. There's no question that there are a lot of priests who are moderately worried about us, so they don't really tell their parishioners about us. And then there are definitely priests who just outright hate us. Uh, they call you heretical? Uh, yeah, more, I mean... Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I mean, in, in a some softly call call us liberal, and they are just like we're too liberal, so that's not. But others who are, um, I mean, others who really, really don't like us. I mean, just call us heretics and going to hell and all kinds of stuff. So we get a lot of that. Um, <laughs> but we, yeah, we, you know, we try to. Um, we just look. I think. I think. I think our honestly, our main audience really are people who a want to see these things at least discussed in the church Mm -hmm. and b um are about to just call it quits but then see that there's another orthodox voice or presence and feel then that they don't have to call it quits Mm -hmm. and um and we're 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 independent we're not under any church organization or jurisdictions we're totally independent and it it allows us to do programming like we're going to do on october 13th where we're going to have uh, a half day sort of seminar conference gathering uh and it's called uh, seeking harmony and compassion pastoral care and lgbtq plus orthodox faithfuls who are we're inviting, it's not really academic, we're inviting LGBTQ plus Orthodox faithful to come and just simply talk about their experience within the church. Where is this? It's at Fordham Lincoln Center. Okay. It's on October 13th from 1 to 5.30 or so. Uh, It's on our website in Public Orthodoxy. There's an events page and you can find it there. And so, you know, we're, we're a space where at the very least, people just want to be heard mm-hmm. and in ways that they can't really be heard elsewhere. Yeah. And to feel that maybe orthodoxy can, to, to feel that they don't have to necessarily completely break uh, their connection with orthodoxy in order to think and feel a certain kind of way. And um, yeah, I think we're very unique in the world. And um, I hope that, uh, you know, we're working hard to raise money so we can continue to be that kind of space for people, even after George and I are, you know, retired and gone. So, very good. Well, I appreciate all the work that you're doing, you know, oh, as a yeah. politician. 
do appreciate any anything that anyone can do that's you know uh forging um you know positivity yeah. and harmony in society this is i think you know what we all should be striving for um you know having a good functioning world and um i really do appreciate you taking out time to come onto the podcast to share your uh, thoughts and uh, ideas well you're welcome and uh, thank you for inviting me <laughs>